Grai Media, I am Stefan Coritar and this is Tech Talk, the podcast where you can discover insights and valuable information about how entrepreneurs build their startup in the tech industry and the way the tech business works. I have conversations about technology, innovation, people and life around tech businesses and communities with the main goal to help you get inspired, get started, dream big and build amazing businesses. In this episode, I talk to David Timish. David Timish is a keynote speaker focused on the impact that AI will have on the future of work. He has master's degrees in business administration management and public policy and work experience in the private, public and NGO sectors. He has guest lectured at renowned universities such as Cambridge University in the UK and the College of Europe and delivered presentations for a diverse range of clients including Google, the European Commission and ISEC. David has been recognized as an influential leader by the Association to Advance Collegiate Schools of Business and included on the Forbes 30 under 30 list in Romania for his continuous work to promote education and digital skills. If you are interested in the future of work and the future of skills, then you shouldn't skip this conversation. Enjoy my talk with David. Hi, David, and welcome to Tech Talk. Hello, thank you for having me. David, although we're kind of having this gloomy day over here um, uh, while we're recording this uh, this this podcast, I want to have a uplifting and you know, looking forward to the future conversation about uh, our topic th- today, and that is, you know, future of skills, future of work. So hopefully we're going to do that. For sure. When the present is gloomy, we do have the future to look forward to. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, you know, like uh, I, I remember that um, Mark Anderson was was saying that software is eating the world, right? And you know that was that was said by him, and he, he's you know a very successful entrepreneur um, from Silicon Valley, and looking looking kind of from Silicon Valley, looking to kind of the entire rest of the world, he can see the trends, right? So even with um, even with UiPath, that is bringing a lot of maybe um, if I could say it right you know, um, a lot of focus on automation. Um, with these things, um, you know, uh, we have a gap in the work skills as a society. Um, and it's definitely not getting smaller due to the technology and, you know, fast pace. Um, what can you tell us about this gap of skills created by automation and, you know, super advancing tech companies? I think, first of all, I have to confess that I think automation is good overall. I think it's goal is to, again, automate tasks which are either too boring for people, too mundane, or even in some cases too dangerous for people to do by themselves. So I think automation is good. What I think is not that good is that, as with anything technologically driven, we sometimes forget about, you know, the the downsides of it, because obviously automation, as other technological advancements, are bringing a lot of productivity gains. Um, there are people who are uh, losing their jobs because of it. And the question I think most companies that do consider automation now or in the future should ask themselves is, okay, yes, we will implement these software, this robotic process automation tools, but what do we do with the people they will displace? Because it's still our responsibility as companies to figure out something for them, either reskill them or upskill them and keep them within within the company itself or help them find uh, another path in in their career. So definitely, Companies should not see this automation tools as, uh, you know, the 
golden fleece if we look at antiquity mm -hmm. and say oh we're gonna get it and we don't care about its repercussions no it's still down to them uh, as as uh, companies to take care of the employees that these technologies disrupt how are the how are the you know how are the numbers looking at uh, this gap i know if you know if you know something like european or us based numbers is there something that we should be maybe scared of or yeah i think it's it's a it's a huge number i think and i don't have the the numbers in front of me now to give you the exact quotation but i think globally something around 300 million jobs are at risk of automation as of today uh, and just in europe i think alone there's uh, a huge need for reskilling. I think around 30 million Europeans need uh, reskilling, which to really, um, compared with upskilling, reskilling means to really mm -hmm. learn a new trait altogether. So if you're, for instance, working HR, for some reason you're getting fired, to find another another career altogether, be it in finance or in marketing. Upskilling is the sort of a easier transition because you might be in again in HR and you just learn data analytics to do your job better. So there's mm -hmm. even more people obviously needing upskilling, maybe double the amount of people needing reskilling uh, today. So I think again, the numbers are rough. Don't quote me on the numbers exactly because I, I don't have them in front of me now, but yeah, roughly yeah. around again, hundreds of millions of people will need uh, will need reskilling because of automation and now also moreover because of COVID, which uh, hastened oh, yeah. and, and hurried the the pace of, of of adoption for such technologies like automation, because obviously now there's much easier. I mean, to go a bit going a bit uh, a few steps back. COVID was like the Trojan horse in a sense, in, in again in antiquity. If I quote antiquity again, because for some companies they were a bit worried that they would get bad PR if out of a sudden they would replace their factory workers with robots. But now when when COVID came they had the good argument to say, no, we cannot uh, bring back mm -hmm. our employees on the factory floor in physical jobs because it's a health hazard for them. So it was easier for them to lay off people and introduce robots uh, and not get any bad PR because of it, because still our economies have to function. So what they've done is, in a sense, covered now because of this context. But passing it on to you, I hope I answered the question I, and I hope I didn't go mm -hmm. too much into uh, sideway discussions. Or no, it's just, it, it's perfect. Uh, and, and um you know those numbers are kind of scary looking at maybe from from where i sit they are kind of scary and um you know when i'm i'm thinking about them the next question that i uh, you know is popping in my mind is do we have the infrastructure ready for that transition of upskilling or reskilling do i don't know do we have the companies does the you know government do something who should be in charge maybe who should be in charge of this and what is being done right now you know in fixing that problem I think all the pieces of the puzzle are, are at our disposal, meaning that we have everything we need. The problem is we're not working together to solve this this problem of, the problem is to really make it uh, or identify it clearly for everybody is how to reskill people quickly and at scale. Because if somebody is getting fired who's in his or her middle age, so 40, 50, or even 60 years old, uh, and if they don't have savings, like it, it, it is the case in most countries actually these days, yeah. You, you will really need to reskill them and employ them really quickly before th that unemployment turns into health problems, both mental and potentially physical health problems, financial problems, and other sorts of issues that can cause really dramatic consequences to somebody. Yeah. So again, speed and scale is, is, is of uh, tremendous importance. And working together, because at this stage, and I worked you know for four years at Google, in which I ran uh, Atelier Digital, as it's called mm -hmm. in Romania, or Grow with Google as the bigger initiative it's called globally, it's a tremendously uh, you know, impactful initiative to reskill people at scale. 
However, even in my experience working with, with Google on this project in Romania, I realized that you, you do need the government, the authorities to really bring that scale. I mean, you can do as much as a company, even if you have all the best intentions, yeah. you still need the Ministry of Education to push uh, universities to implement some of these changes and to add maybe um, or to upgrade their curriculum. So there's a collaboration needed. And in most cases, that collaboration is hard to do. Uh, be it because maybe companies think in some cases, and now I'm just giving general examples, not referring to any company in particular, but some companies might think that uh, higher education institutions are a bit slower to, to adapt change. And it's in some cases pointless to try to convince them better to just implement something by yourself as a company. And on the other hand, I think um, the higher education institutions that I worked with kind of saw companies getting involved in education as almost stepping on their turf. So there's almost like in a relationship, there's a need for a, for a, for a better dialogue between private and, and public sector, uh, you know, Ministry of Education and the universities themselves and companies to, to solve this problem in the future. Yeah, I, I fully agree. And listening to you, I just realized that, you know, um, in the same time, the public part is losing ground and... Um, Yeah, losing ground um, in in the face of uh, the private companies and private you know institutions that are being born um, that come as a support or help towards these you know um, you know um, parts of society people that need uh, upskilling reskilling and um, I, I don't know maybe that's better that's good or maybe it's not good but um, you know it's definitely the public part you know you know, you know um, institutions like university which you mentioned are becoming if i could say obsolete maybe if they're not you know agile enough and then uh, adopting new programs in terms of how to reskill upskill becoming you know creating a, a bigger portfolio in terms of how they educate the society right so yeah that's you know it means that the problem is not only in terms of um people not picking it up but also the the infrastructure is not picking it up fast enough <laughs> yeah the resources are there it's just not they're not being uh, properly leveraged exactly and in terms of i've, I've mentioned companies and you also uh, mentioned the, the private part what would be some you know simple solutions for companies to support their talent in reskilling or upskilling do they have something at hand do they have internal initiatives Yeah, I think internally there's a lot that companies are doing, especially big companies, tech companies in particular, that that are you know doing to reskill their own employees. I think what would be ideally uh, more beneficial for tech companies and for other large multinationals is for them to get even more involved in in helping um, secure their future pipeline of employees. Meaning again, collaborating more closely with higher education institutions to make sure that not just current employees are are doing well and are being reskilled, but also the future. Uh, graduates will also have the skills they need to, to perform in these companies. And I think my, my vision, which I, I, I laid out to a former, a former professor and mentor of mine from my uh, previous university, uh, Glasgow University, I just had a, a chat with him yesterday about education. He was sharing what his uh, institution, Glasgow University, is doing in COVID times on, on learning and, and uh, you know, the future of education. And my vision is fairly simple. For, for universities, I think especially focus on helping young people de- develop their soft skills, meaning people skills, you know, how to communicate, how to collaborate, how to work in projects, either through the courses you, you have in your curriculum or through the volunteering activities you can do as being part of the university in a, you know, in, on campus. 
and also the, as I call them, growth mindset skills, which are um, adaptability, grit, perseverance. Mm-hmm. Again, skills that you can learn for volunteering and for education if you're if you're doing a lot of project-based work. I would then argue leave the technical skills, which are it's very hard for universities to keep up with them, especially if we're not speaking about the Ivy League universities in the U.S. or the really top top one percent universities in the world. It's very hard for the rest to keep up with the latest technologies, especially. So this is where I would bring companies for the technical skills, be it you know data analytics, AI, or even um, you know medical uh, related uh, technical skills, because there's a lot of uh, medical devices now that you need some sort of digital skills to to maneuver them and to handle them. Leave it for the companies themselves to come, if needed, even bring their own infrastructure and help train, similar to what is happening in Germany with the apprenticeship programs, in which you know students really have the chance to work with the tools they will work after they graduate or with the people they would work in, in after the graduation. You know, I think that's the key. So the technical part, the actually hands-on practical stuff, leave it for companies yeah. to come and pitch it in. Mm-hmm. And the university then prepares the individual from the other perspective, the people side, the growth mindset side, which are super important, but it's almost like the ABCs nowadays. If you don't have communication skills, in most companies, you will not be doing very well. But for the technical skills, again, to re- reiterate, Many universities are, again, as you said, a bit outdated in their in their approach, and they're just they just cannot keep up with the advancements that these companies are actually producing. So it's, it should be the company's duty to be coming a bit closer into teaching the future generations of potential employees to use these tools. Yeah. Do you think that you, what should universities do in this? I mean, just I'm just picking your brain. Maybe you do have you know, the answer uh, on you, but maybe you don't. But what should universities do in in such context? You know, I don't know, change change professors or you know, change, you know, add consultants that could create these programs and stuff like that, or what? It's really making their approach a bit more tailor-made, looking at, for instance, even the, the labor market every year to see okay, how many people, and I think there are countries who are doing this, by the way. I think Sweden is, is an example I've read about in the past that even for for instance, for their top universities, uh, you know, doing um, or having medicine degrees, they look every year what's the need of doctors in the country and the specialties in each sort of sub subdomain within medicine. And then they limit the roles, or sorry, the, the places in those classes for exactly the, the need they have. So making making education a bit more supply meets demand and not just simply having a you know thousands of graduates in a topic that actually the market doesn't need and they will have problems and they will need to reskill themselves after graduating if, if they're if they're not careful enough with, with choosing their degree. So universities should be I think a bit more pragmatic and yes again involve the tech sectors or the you know sorry the private sector companies, the mm-hmm. tech companies especially who are bringing this disruption to work a bit more closely with them and to even ask them, okay, Um, Amazon, Google, and other large multinationals from outside the tech sector, what sort of graduates do you need? What, How we can make sure that these young people that we now prepare for life will have at least a job when they when they graduate? Because for most people, the hardest step is the first step. If you as a university ensure that 95% of your graduates get a job after the end of the degree in a subject they studied in, then you're successful. Yeah. I don't know the numbers by heart, but I'm sure most universities are not really proud to say that most of their graduates are, are I mean, the majority is not finding a job in the degree they study these days, which is yeah. then I would say a failure of some educational systems in universities. Yeah, I, I fully agree. And that's something that also I've seen. I mean, and I'm not looking very far away. I'm looking into my colleagues that we went together to into universities and so on. And a lot of people you know, I've studied business administration and a lot of my uh, friends, colleagues that went into uh, this faculty, they ended up, you know, working at, you know, in, in positions as, I don't know, sales, 
uh, retail and stuff like that, right? So um, they didn't end up working as a, you know, having their own company and stuff like that. So I think, yeah, there's also a disconnection, a major disconnection in terms of putting together the uh, demand and supply part in terms of what number are you generating of, of, you know, of people out of that, out of the universities in terms to meet the, you know, the society demand. Um, but to give you, sorry, to give you a concrete example yeah. in case your, your listeners would be curious to, to see that there's actually entities or organizations that are doing something exactly in this direction. There's this initiative that started in McKinsey and Company called Generation, uh, an initiative that since then has spinned off into its own entity, its own uh, .org, so a non-governmental organization, which is supporting mm -hmm. unemployed young people, but now also um, uh, middle-aged people um, in, in reskilling themselves into finding jobs. And their, their approach is very fascinating to me um, since I follow these reskilling and upskilling initiatives and see what's working and what's not. Their approach is very good because they go to a country, let's say Spain, they look Obviously, Spain had and still has huge issues with unemployment amongst young mm -hmm. people. And they look, what's the biggest industry in that country in today's, uh, you know, uh, digital age? And in this case, in Spain, is actually, or it was when they started the program there a few years ago, digital marketing. So they partnered up with, a, with a, I think it was actually Google. That's how I knew about them because I was working at Google back then. And I, I heard the people doing the same program I was managing in Romania at Lero Digital partnered up with this McKinsey initiative called Generation to reach skill Spanish youth in, in digital marketing because that's what that was what the market was asking and it didn't have yeah. had enough. Yeah. So then yeah. the generation initiative trained them and not only prepared them for this digital marketing jobs, but also helped them secure the jobs because they already had partnerships in place. I think that's the missing piece with yeah. many reskilling yeah. initiatives. You retrain people, you reskill them, but then if you don't have already a partnership in place or some help to provide them and to find the job. There, it, it might be another six months until that young person finds a job in time in which you might be able to, I mean, as a person that was trained, you might lose already those skills or forget exactly. them. So it's really key to place the people and also, if possible, to help them during their first six months in the job to mentor them. Because again, especially if it's a first job for a young person, a lot of things might be, a lot of things might be going through his or her head and there might be many challenges that they're not equipped to deal with. So even mentorship on the job is very important, I think. So I wanted to provide this generation example to to showcase that what I'm talking about, it's happening, it's possible, it just needs to be scaled uh, and, and implemented elsewhere as well. Yeah, um, and uh, I mean, the, the the mentorship part, I think it's super important because, you know, not everybody comes with a, you know, super high self-esteem and self-trust. So you have to manage that and help, you know, support that person to go through. But, um, you know, coming back to what you said in terms of generation.org, uh, my question is what, who led that initiative? Was it led by the government or was it led by um, own McKinsey institution or which one? It was McKinsey. It started out as a project within McKinsey, the consulting uh, firm. Um, and it was initially started by people within McKinsey, consultants who wanted to do uh, work for the public sector to really help on this particular issue, which is unemployment. And then since, since it started, I think five or six years ago, they spinned off into their own entity, as I mentioned, which is now not connected to McKinsey directly. It still has many people from McKinsey working there because it's, again, there was this connection, historical connection, which cannot be erased. But they act now as an NGO who brings together the people. You know, they bring together the, obviously, the, the clients, the target audience, which is the young people unemployed or the middle-aged people who are unemployed. Then they bring, in some cases, the training partners. It was Google in Spain. They have other partners in each, in each country where they operate. 
And then also very importantly, they also bring the companies that will hire the young people. So they, they have the sort of a three-pronged approach of bringing the young people, the target audience, but also the other providers, other partners to make sure the, 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 the there's a whole funnel that people go through and not just, you know, they don't just take care of the first part with skilling, they actually go and help them throughout this employment journey, which for many takes in some cases years. So okay. that's, I think, what they bring you to the table. And some organizations are trying to replicate, but it's it's very costly. And I know them, I, I speak with Generation on an almost monthly basis, and they, they keep telling me how it is very difficult to gather the support in many in many ways to because obviously they, they 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 depend on their partners the companies employing these young people they exactly. are usually the ones paying for the programs not the not the unemployed people or also they depend on government um grants and these grants actually are coming more and more now because of covid so in the sense covid i think it was like a magnifying glass not just for 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 the economy and for unemployment but it for everything i think in our society to really see what the problem is and to see also what what we, what we can do to act, because again the solutions were there. It was they just didn't receive enough attention, from my perspective. Um, okay, yeah, I, I was I was super curious if this was led by only McKinsey, because, um, but yeah, you can't answer my question because if you know McKinsey is running it, so the McKinsey McKinsey people or the you know, Generation.org people are going after the partnership with the Spanish government with the Spanish companies. And then doing at their own costs or by grants, kind of targeting these uh, the society, the youth that needs to uh, reskill or upskill. So that's a heavy um, and costly program to run. Uh, and I think you really need support in terms of doing such massive, uh, you know, change in society. I definitely do think so. Um, coming back to one of my questions, um, in terms of you know. Um, the things that I ask you around companies uh, and what kind of solutions they have um, to reskill and upskill their their talent. What are some of the industries that are most affected right now by this? Uh, by automation and also uh, COVID as well, because COVID again affected the people who are already susceptible to to losing their jobs because of automation. It's mostly people working in physical jobs, either in factories. Uh, also in you know retail fast food restaurants everything that involves a lot of um, face-to-face contact and also physical mundane routine tasks to do clerical work so people working in, in administrative jobs doing you know random uh, monotonous excel sheet work uh, this sort of jobs will sooner rather than later be um, automatable by technology like RPA, especially the clerical work I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I think there's quite a few industries affected, but also some industries, as with any crisis, uh, that are really pushed even stronger ahead, which is, in this case, IT and healthcare. There's more more than ever now vacancies in IT, also in healthcare. There's the, uh, a much higher need for nurses, for elderly care nurses, especially these days, then, then, and, and the, the trend will continue to increase as populations around the world will live longer. Yeah. Uh, they will, there will be a need for people to take care of, of the elderly when they're, when they, when they maybe lost their other uh, support networks and family members. So yeah. there's always highs and lows with any crisis, be it uh, the one led by COVID or automation. Um, since you already uh, already mentioned, you know, uh, nurses and the entire. Um, medical sector uh, we are reading as a team right now we are reading the checklist manifesto uh, just so that we can adopt the mindset around the checklist and the efficiency of checklists and having checklists like procedures on, on things you know on processes 
and um, the the book is really very very well written from a storytelling perspective and there's a lot of examples from the medical uh, situations and uh, one thing that I remembered while I was listening to you is that um, uh, the writer was saying that specialization of of of, of medical um, skills is becoming even even broader even I mean even it becomes even um, let's say wider wider exactly so if you know if five years ago we had let's say 500 specializations we're gonna have right now 1,000 right so just because of exactly what you said uh, the number of population is growing and also the number of um, new diseases new things that have to be covered are is becoming uh, uh, wider as well so yeah I definitely agree with that um, coming back to the programs part one thing that I'm interested in is what type of threats are we facing if you know reskilling and upskilling programs are not implemented fast enough some damages the biggest threat is obviously a financial one at an individual level but also societal level because if somebody's unemployed they are going through financial hardship which means they cannot also spend money which means the economy also has to suffer at the end of the day um but also i think the biggest threat and we're going to see it probably in the years to come especially also the one targeted or caused by COVID is this mental health threat because employment for many people is also a way of um, obviously a way of getting motivation every day especially if you do a job that you at least fairly enjoy it's it's a way to really get by uh, and and uh, beyond just securing your financial uh, resources to really get the motivation to live and if you take this out of a person it's really hard in some cases to find motivation to do things so we, we tend to identify maybe too much with our jobs but I do see a, a, a need as a human to identify with, with, a, with an activity altogether. And for, for, more, for most people, it's actually their job. Maybe they don't have a um, really concrete hobby and the job is what they really um, connect with. And if you take that away, it's, it's a huge mental health uh, potential crisis uh, at large. So I think that's what we should expect in the next years if we're not careful enough. And again, if unemployment is not uh, tackled with, with proper reskilling and upskilling program, uh, programs, it's financial and mental health uh, issues for, for people across the world. I was visiting San Francisco two years back. And um, I mean, it was really, really kind of tragic and sad in the same time what, what I, was, I was witnessing the dystopia of you know, what the tech industry can do and have as an effect on society you know i know if you know about it or if you visit it but you you there's there's um you know homeless people so many homeless people in san francisco and especially homeless people that are shooting you know drugs um every day right and living on the streets tents um temporary houses built by all kinds of parts of they found on the streets so that is the exactly the thing that you know can the tech company that or the tech trend can do if you know not if if you know important um pillars in the society will not pick up their game you know like 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 we talked about universities the government and so on you can easily end up like and not you don't need 20 years you only need like five years maybe 10 years so you can have a majority of the society becoming homeless shooting drugs and stuff like that and I don't think that's a very, very pretty picture. <laughs> no, but it, it's what happens when you move fast and break things. 
was was the mantra of one of the tech companies. I think it's initially many of them really went on this this uh, craze of just innovating and advancing technology and making huge progress, which they have. But only more recently, they realized also about their their uh, impact in society and about the need to really get more involved in in, in their co- the communities they, they they impact the most. So I know in San Francisco, for instance, I know Google, my former employer, bought a lot of land to to make it you know uh, social housing, making making it a place for social housing and to really get a bit more involved in the problem they indirectly created. Yeah. Same with global warming, you know data centers are probably the biggest consumers of energy and they're huge polluters in the sense because of this. So now most tech companies actually, at least the big ones, are actually some of the most eco-friendly companies because they, they, they're they running all their data centers on clean energy powered by wind yeah. or, 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 or sun. So they are seeing what's happening. And I was part of, again, Google, and I know internally how much this moved from you know, really advancing and, and making progress to also seeing what impact we have and being a bit more empathetic. So I think this change is happening. At least that's how I perceived it while whilst being there. Uh, but uh, I mean, it, it it has to now happen quite fast, as you said, because we did, in a sense, not waste, but have many year, had many years in the past in which these things, be it climate change or the impact we have in our communities for 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 unemployed people and how we treat them, these problems were kind of not taken care of, and now we have to move a bit faster to really solve them before they go too too bad and they be, before they get too too big to solve. So. I think we still have time, though. I'm optimistic, and I think yeah. COVID is exactly exactly the reset we need to really reprioritize things, both at an individual and also at a societal level. So we have all the opportunities to do something about it, and we still have time. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And um, there's gonna be um, uh, there's gonna be a need of deploying lots of money, but uh, there's no other way of you know doing it. There's no other way of you as a as a government, as a you know as a uh, as a country. Um, you have to deploy that money to become more sustainable. Um, you have you have been also very active, like in in the Western Europe, within your career, and you know, um, you've already mentioned things like Generation Org and McKinsey, and I know you've been very uh, you've been working and living in Brussels. What are some of the actions taken in that part of Europe when we talk about reskilling, upskilling? I mean, there's there's probably a bit more uh, done than it is maybe in Romania, but not a, a, a lot more. So in a sense, I think there's still a, an issue. Recently, I think the European Union launched the European Skills Agenda, uh, through which they're going to try to push member states to really do something about reskilling and to really, again, bridge the gap between the supply, the graduates, the universities preparing them, and the demand, what the companies actually need. So there's finally a wake-up call at the European level of, you know, pushing forward this this European skills agenda, but it's still very early on. It's still very early stage, and I think, as I said, I mean, more has to be done. And I think there are examples from not west of Europe, but actually in Asia. I like an example I usually quote when, when speaking about reskilling is uh, Singapore. Uh, Singapore is having these learning tokens in which everybody, all you know, each citizen in Singapore is receiving a, a lump of money, a fixed sum of money every month, to use specifically for reskilling purposes. You cannot use those money to buy Gucci bags or anything like that. You, you have to use them to, to do a reskilling course, either provided by the government or by the company you work in or by an external provider you would pay for with these tokens. And I think this That's is cool. a great alternative to also another option, which I, I kind of recommend these days. I say I kind of because I know it's not the ideal solution, but I know it's needed in some countries and in some cases with the UBI, Universal Basic Income. Yeah. Because again, yeah. now... 
because of these huge issues that we created, in some cases, these unemployed people I'm referring to, and I referred to previously, if you don't find a way to reskill them at scale quickly in six months, you, you, you face huge consequences. So having a UBI as a temporary solution, a lump of money you give them to just use to survive, it might be a good option. And then to gradually move to the, what Singapore is doing, the, the reskilling money, the, the learning tools. That's the sort of next step, which is much more sustainable. It's, it's you know, the money not to, to put food on the table like UBI would be in, in initially, is to really go higher in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, to self-actualize yourself, to develop yourself, which I think is what every, every human aspires to do eventually. But in the, in the short term, you know, in some countries, there is a need for something a bit more drastic, like UBI potentially. Mm. I like I like UBI very much, and um, my friend he's a Romanian actually, um, the second generation of a Romanian family that moved to Canada. Uh, his name is Floyd Marinescu, and uh, he's a big advocate in in Canada, and he has this initiative an NGO called um, UBI Works. So I'm 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 a I'm a big fan of UBI, and I think as you said, as a temporary solution, it could definitely work. I mean, there's massive capital and massive money generated by the, you know, the new tech companies and not, not only tech companies, but there's a lot of money in the market. So UBI can definitely yeah, be a solution for, for temporary, you know, upskilling or a temporary program, actually. A temporary um, relief. It's the safety net people don't have if they don't live yeah. in Scandinavia. In most countries, you don't have a safety net as it is in Scandinavia, which I recently read in Denmark. If you lose your job, because it's fairly easy in Denmark to lose your job, it doesn't have... The labor market there doesn't have the same system like in Romania or in France, because we have a very similar system to the French one in which it's very hard to fire somebody. No, in Denmark, it's easy to fire somebody because the company and the employee knows that the government will take care of him or her. They provide them job search support, counseling, also in some cases, financial incentives to get the job mm -hmm. again. There's, but that's Scandinavia. That's a model which is hard to replicate. Until we can replicate that or do something similar, Again, UBI might be an option for countries which don't have such a, let's say, more social system. Exactly, exactly. I agree. Um, last time we talked, uh, and you already mentioned it in this conversation, you know, around the Amazon project that you have been involved or you are involved as well, in, I think, um, as we're speaking. Can you share some details around that project and, you know, the challenges um, they are trying to fit, they have or they're trying to fix in the same time? Yeah, I mean, I don't usually call it the Amazon project. It's, it's. Uh, I'm working with a startup in the U.S. co-founded by a good friend, a former colleague at Google, mm -hmm. uh, called Mento, who's helping people uh, in their job search. It's initially before COVID, it was focused mainly on individuals like you and I who want to do a career switch, a career change, to offer them job search support, meaning how to write the CV better if you change industry, or how to network and interview or, and prepare for the interviews again if you change industries. Now with COVID, especially we kind of gravitated our focus a bit more to people who are more in need. And in this case, it was actually a cohort of Amazon warehouse workers who will be uh, in, in the next uh, six months or so without a job because of COVID, because of automation and other contextual factors. And Amazon, in a, in a sort of a way, as I previously said in the discussion, to kind of not just leave, leave them and, and you know uh, not help them in any way, they're providing these, these uh, still Amazon employees a way to train, to reskill themselves by partnering up with Mento, the startup I work with, to offer them job search training. And with another uh, bootcamp based in the US called Kenzie Academy, who's offering them technical skill support to, to reskill them into job, uh, sorry, into front-end developers, which is very different from what they've done in some cases for most of their life. But it's, I think, very 
it's a very good example of what will happen more and more in the future. People having physical jobs needing to, to go for a really steep learning curve of learning something really different than what they've done from, in some cases, parts of their life in order to have a job which is more secure because obviously a job as a front-end developer is going to be a bit harder to automate than a job as a, a picker or a, a staff or how do you call it, a stacker, sorry, in an Amazon warehouse. So that's the challenge we're, we're faced with. And like when you say uh, converting um, some part of the employees into front-end developers, they're actually having those courses built in and uh, putting that person through like a six-month period of having that course or are they just facilitating this? Uh, so the, the everything's just the facilitation part. I mean, uh, Amazon is obviously the one providing the, the you know, funds, the resources to do it. And, you know, the academy, the bootcamp is helping to to teach uh, these students, as we call them, the technical skills. And then we kind of come in, uh, if I may use the Amazon term, last mile, uh, we come in, the, the yeah. startup I work with, to really help them. Okay, now you have the technical skills, but you have to translate them into your CV and LinkedIn. This is how you do it. What's thing in the equation, and it's something which definitely is, a, is something to improve in the future, you know, in, in similar projects, is the placement partners. We, we don't have, and it, it was not part of our uh, remit, uh, the startup I work with, it's, it was not part of our, let's say, responsibility to find placement partners for them. It should be part, I think, of the initial project to really focus a bit more, okay, you truly skill people, but what where do you place them? Because again, it's, it's quite a huge jump and you need enough junior front-end development open positions to place all these uh, these future uh, graduates. So I think there's still a lot of improvement, but the challenge I'm seeing is exactly, as I said, the challenge that many, many countries will face and companies of needing to, to find another purpose for, for a tremendous amount of people who need to change industry and, and uh, career altogether in a very short amount of time. Um, listening to you, and I'm, I'm, I realize that you know Amazon is some the the this project that you're having with Mento um, is let's say ongoing. But then I remember that you also mentioned Atelier Digital, the program that you've uh, you've done in Romania. What are some some interesting key findings from implementing that program? Um, I don't know how many people how many people have been trained, how many people went into I guess digital marketing services. Um, can you share some some info on that? Yeah, I think it was a project we started, if I'm not mistaken, um, May 2015 in in Romania. If I'm not mistaken, or was it 2016? I think 2016. Sorry, in Romania, uh, a program that Google had at that stage only in a few countries in the EU. It was not yet around the world, and the the purpose was to help young people in particular and also young entrepreneurs to learn digital marketing skills. The lessons we learned very early on was that digital marketing is not enough. So we added the, the sort of job search uh, support uh, function, meaning how to brand yourself online, how to write a CV, how to network, other sort of software skills. Mm -hmm. And we also realized later on at the stage in which I was almost um, close to my end of the, you know, the, of the engagement I had with this project in Romania before moving to, to Belgium to work there with, at Google. Uh, the last stage I took part of was this transition to, okay, digital marketing, we covered it, we have resources, soft skills, we added uh, trains on soft skills provided by other Google or, or partners on the platform. And then the last stage was uh, AI machine learning skills, which were obviously uh, were and still are uh, in demand. And we realized we, as a company, Google, have this responsibility knowing that we're pushing these technologies and that we're using them to teach other people how to, 
to to use them. And yeah, in the three years I was there, so in, in, from 2016 to end of 2018, uh, over 100,000 people were trained either online for the online platform or offline. Um, however, probably what I was more proud of than the training itself of large numbers of people, which again, it's going back to the problem I identified with other initiatives, it's we were skilled them, but it was really hard to track how much impact we had in, in in actually um, getting them employed or getting them promoted. We did run various surveys and usually there were you no know, great results, but it was less tangible to see exactly how you impacted them. Um, what I found more easier to manage, let's say, and also more impactful at the really granular level was we ran an academy in which we, we brought in young students from, from uh, the top universities in the country to go for a more in-depth, more a bit more advanced Atelier Digital, so digital training for a week, and then be uh, put in a matchmaking uh, context with the agencies that would like to, to hire them. And we had a huge success rate. I think it was around 80% or 90% of the people got at least an internship, if not a full-time job oh, wow. afterwards, which I thought, cool. again, goes back to the generation model I, I mentioned earlier. Like it, it, It's not enough just to reskill them. You teach them these amazing skills, but then if you place them with the company early on after they, they just graduated from your program, that's when you can say, okay, job done. Or even in this case, it's just 80%. If you want to say it's job done, you have to follow them. As I said, in their employment, and at least for six months, offer them whatever support they need, be it mentorship or counseling or anything, they need to really stay in that job and perform. Um, so again, this was a, an example of smaller impact in terms of numbers, but I would say higher impact in terms of actual lives changed in a, in a way. Um, that's that's great because I, I do believe, like listening to you, I do believe that there has to be this responsibility of um, becoming more sustainable um, in terms of managing the end-to-end -end process of transitioning into another you know position or upskilling reskilling whatever it would be so i think these um, institutions companies stakeholders within this space should become more more responsible in terms of managing the entire end-to-end -end cycle to be to be sure that if i'm taking a, a person from point a to point b i'm going to take care of that process and manage it so that the person gets you know safely um, and um, accommodated to point B. So I think I think you know we have Schola uh, Informala, the IT in Romania, which is doing an amazing job um, in that, and they are managing end to end in their in their niche, right in the tech, uh, and I think they're doing a great job. And also, I have a friend from Startup Grind um, from Ukraine that has this exactly same same platform. He's doing the same thing. So I think if you know the the public institutions would look like would look over to these like frameworks and get inspired or you know um i don't know copy right maybe copy is too <laughs> it's, it's too extreme but get inspired from those models and just adopt them in within their their systems i think that would be that would work definitely i think going back to your point i think there's two options to go about it the one that is happening now with small and large companies that are doing something about it and they have impact, but it's at a rather small scale. And then there's these governments, not just in Romania, who are inactive in the sense that I would see the role as you know, laying with the government to really bring the actors together because you have a generation, you have a Google or this Schola Informala DT, which are doing amazing work by doing everything from point A to point B. But again, the scale is not as high as it could be if the government would be involved. And the government would not have to be the one 
taking the people from point A to point B with its own resources, the government should be the convener of each each piece of the puzzle, be it the company, a job search support agency, an NGO, to bring these actors together and then, okay, we have point A, point B, point C taken care of, we, the government, support it financially, ideally, or even just partly. It might be partly funded by the companies themselves, but then we convene these entities, which is a bit harder to convene if the company is doing it. You know, a company maybe can pay the NGO to help, but then it cannot pay the government to help. It still has to be, you know, it's a, it's you know, it's a full uh, partnership. It can, it yeah. cannot go you know, one way or the other. And I think the government should take this role more actively of convening the pieces of the puzzle to put such uh, reskilling programs, uh, as they call them, holistic reskilling programs, you know, into action because they're 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 doable. You saw Scuola Informale de which is a small initiative if you look at the larger scheme of yeah. things. It has success locally, and I, I know of them, and I know PTEC Plus also includes, which is fairly active. Yeah, exactly. So there are initiatives, but again, their skill could be much more if they would be a bit more supported by local uh, and also national um, governments. Yeah. Well, um, David, thank you very much for, for joining Tech Talk, and I think the, this is a great um, uh, tone of energy that we can end up our conversation, and um, hopefully we can look into getting the government and the public side more involved into reskilling and upskilling. So thank you very much for joining. Thank you for inviting me. And yeah, there's a good message to end up with. We can do more to carry us on in 2021. (laughs) We can definitely do more. There's a lot of space, yes. Thank you for joining, David. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you liked this conversation, go review us on Apple Podcast. Your support will help us reach more people that need to listen to this conversation. And don't forget to subscribe to your favorite podcast platform to be the first to find out about our future guests.